0: You're listening to the CMS Podcast, and I'm Andrew Whitaker, communications manager for the Comparative Media Studies program at MIT. MIT Comparative Media Studies celebrated its 10th anniversary this month, so we threw a big bash inviting back all our alumni, welcoming MIT faculty and friends, and together getting a chance to look back over 10 years of an amazing program and forward to 10 amazing years more. You can find all of the anniversary podcasts and a huge array of other podcasts from CMS over the years in the iTunes store, and on our website at cms.mit.edu.
1: I'm Jim Parity. I'm head of the program in writing and humanistic studies. Uh, and like many sections, we work very closely with CMS and consider it a, uh, a fantastic resource for MIT and for all of us. Uh, William asked me to run a panel, and I said, "Oh, sure, I'd be happy to." And then he sent me the information, and I said, "Oh my God, it's about creativity." So, <laughs> creativity. Oh, that's a huge subject in this age. Uh, but uh, so I, I thought uh, I would say a few things about it before I uh, before I say give a, 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 a very very short introduction. Uh, I thought I would introduce the people who are who are on the panel, because uh, this panel is really about students and their experiences with creativity in this age. And this is a tremendous subject, we all know this, because uh, the possibilities of the digital age have brought creativity forward from the laboratories where it's always existed. In 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 the schools, uh, in people who are doing things and creating culture, everyday culture. And those sources of creativity in the past history have often been submerged under the official realm of creativity. Uh, And so whatever this thing called creativity is, we know that humans innately practice it. And they massively influence the cultures that they exist in. So uh, before I say anything more, uh, I'd like to introduce our panelists, because uh, they are people who have been on the forefront at MIT in comparative media studies. And they all have really interesting backgrounds. And so it'll help you to understand a few things about what they're saying. Uh, Let me start with Beth Coleman, who is an assistant professor of writing and new media at MIT with a joint appointment in the program in writing and humanistic studies and comparative media studies. She works on issues of networked identity, pervasive media design, and does experimental work at the intersection of art, technology, and cultural impact. Her work has been published in Camera Obscura, Pervasive Computing, and numerous art and cultural periodicals. She has exhibited her artwork at the Whitney Museum of American Art, the Modern Art Museum in Paris, and the Waig Institute in Amsterdam. She is a recipient of a Rockefeller Foundation for New Media Arts Award, a Ford Foundation Fellowship, and multiple international residencies. Professor Coleman's book, Hello Avatar, will be published by MIT Press. Clara Clara Fernandez-Var is a postdoctoral researcher at the Singapore MIT Gambit Game Lab. Her work Concentrates on adventure games as well as the integration of stories in simulated environments. She is particularly interested in cross media artifacts from the standpoint of textual analysis and performance. Clara holds a PhD in digital media from the Georgia Institute of Technology. She earned a BA in English studies at the Universidad Automá de Madrid in 2000 and was awarded a fellowship from. Lacques Foundation to pursue her master's in comparative media when she came here to MIT in 2004. Philip Philip Tan uh, is a CMS graduate, an MIT undergraduate, who now directs the U.S. operations of the award-winning Singapore MIT Gambit Game Lab. He is also a project man- manager for the Media Development Authority of Singapore. He has served on the steering committees. Of the Singapore chapter of the International Game Developers Association and work closely with Singapore game developers to launch industry wide initiatives. He has also designed and produced online educational games at MIT's Education Arcade. Philip has done work in Boston's uh, Museum of Fine Arts School, the MIT Media Lab, Radio WMBR 88.1 FM, and the MIT Assassins Guild which awarded him the title of Master Assassin for his live action role-playing game designs. I think I've seen some of these. And Brett, who is a camper, a real camper, because he has volunteered to serve on the panel without any prior notice, and I don't have a biography for him, so he has actually said he would say a few things about himself.
2: Before I came to CMS, I worked in uh, software development, and uh, came to CMS, worked primarily with uh, games at the education arcade, and also uh, uh, looking into the practice of independent game development, which is something I'm very glad to see has really taken off in the five years uh, since I left CMS. Um, After I left CMS, I went back to software development, and I focused um, mostly on companies that that work in uh, software that's related to media, so I worked at a company called eMusic, which is um, a, a download service for independent, uh, for independent artists. And uh, I now work at a company called Kickstarter in New York City, which is a, a platform for, um, for raising money for creative projects.
1: Thank you. And finally, uh, Ivan Asquith is a 2007 Master of Science graduate from CMS, where, among other things, he conducted research on television as an engagement medium. A frequent contributor to such publications as Salon.com, Asquith writes on issues at the intersection of media, technology, culture, and entertainment. His work while at MIT also focused on alternate reality, gaming, social networking, and viewer engagement. Ivan has worked as a freelance designer and consultant for almost a decade and is now the director of strategy for Big Spaceship, a digital creative agency based in Brooklyn, New York. I hope this gives you some idea of the range of uh, backgrounds and interests that uh, some of our students have gone into. Uh, so let me just say uh, a couple of very short things about a very profound subject, and that is creativity. Uh, what is it? Uh, <laughs> It's all sorts of things, but uh, we all agree that uh, it is probably a mental and social process involving the discovery of new ideas or concepts or new associations between existing ideas and concepts. Anybody know where I took that from? One of the major dictionaries. Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Others might insist that it is fundamentally about originality and even vision in the production of that which has not been before imagined. How does creativity happen? One model of creativity is that of the artist or thinker or maker of things in solitude, bringing forth what has not before had form. Another model of creativity is that of the collective interaction of the many, all gaining inspiration from one another. On the one hand, we have the image of the great brooding master artist, Leonardo Murakami, bringing forth his vision, or her vision. On the other hand, we have the image of the vast collective enterprise, the creators of the internet, the King James Bible, the Elizabethan theater, all collectively producing the great work. And now, in our digital age, we have the pure creator, whether the individual or the collective many whose daily productions continually bring forth that which is original, bringing forth a continually evolving culture in which we live. And as we think of this subject, we realize that these models have emerged through historical time. But in the 19th century, there was a major shift in the understanding of culture as a result of evolutionary studies in which anthropological thinking, began to see uh, the tradition of the invention of the great work as complemented by a tradition of the production of culture by all the people who existed in the culture. I'm thinking of uh, Edmund Ty- Tyler. I'm thinking of uh, many of the great anthropologists who actually went out and began to study cultures and societies and realized that Culture itself was a production of uh, all the people who existed in it. And so, as many of us here know, the work of Raymond Williams. Raymond Williams was one of the people who brought these two ideas together. And he said, well, indeed, these are both correct concepts of culture. Culture comes both from the great gifted figures who think uh, for all of us in certain uh, imponderable ways, but it's also the production of all the masses who create the culture in which we exist. And now with the internet, these masses and all these, all these areas and, and pro- producers of culture have found new ways in which they can connect and bring forth this whole notion of culture into the present. And we are situated in that, uh, in, in that era today. So our topic today is really looking at ways in which the internet itself has brought us forward, has created a whole new realm for the production of culture, and how we can think about that, and what some of the experiences of that are. And then specifically, some of the ways in which the CMS experience has involved people, immersed people in this whole range of possibilities, and thinking about these possibilities, and how they actually do work in our culture. Uh, And so with this, I will ask each panel member to say something about his or her idea of uh, culture in the digital age. And then we will turn it over to questions and and discuss this. Thank you. Beth is first.
3: Oh, okay. Um, Could somebody help me cable in this machine so I can just show a couple pictures? And so I was thinking about this and um, I wanted to show a couple different projects because I think that for me, CMS has helped to enable a perfect combination of uh, the work I do with undergrads who are primarily uh, computer science or engineering and asking them to think creatively and also to think about well, what's the culture of uh, making things, like for whom are we making them? What do we do with it? And then also working with um, CMS grad students, thank you, And um, grad students throughout the institute like in architecture to say well here's the analysis of how media works what what again what are the things that are, we are making so I'm going to show uh, three different projects very quickly one is with CMS 100 which is the uh, one of the gateway classes so it's the intro class it's mostly first year students and one of the projects that they thought about for this semester uh, we read a lot of um, media theory, and then I ask them to think about, so what do you want to make in relationship to this? And I give them a theme. And the theme that we had this year was um, City's platform. Can you just... Can we open this?
4: It's, uh, it's not speaking.
3: Okay, the, the machines aren't talking it's, to each other. So the project that they came up with is... Um, Building off of the MIT mobile app, which was just introduced this fall, so you can get around the campus and you can find things on your smartphone, they wanted to make an application so people could have kind of a chance meetings with each other. So I'm sitting in the student commons, and I'm struggling through PSETs, whatever, number six I can't get, and I can kind of send an SOS on my handheld saying, okay, who's around and who's working on this? So the kind of um, facilitating collaboration and also chance meetings with each other on the campus, and also building greater um, social architecture for exchanging information. So I have a, a PDF of this project, and this is undergrads, and... What I ask them to do is concept work. Think about how can we make this? What's the best thing to make? And uh, the the thinking is clear enough that the next stage, if we choose to move forward, is talking to um, uh, the, I guess it's IST or whatever group in terms of making this actual. How do you test it out? How do you model it? So that's one way that um, the combination of technology and creativity and working with undergraduates has been um, really inspiring and satisfying. Another project that uh, I've worked on with uh, graduate students is thinking about geolocative design and William's been really helpful in encouraging more, um, a new class on this for the fall. So we're going to make this into more study. But uh, the, the piece we I brought a few students with me to work in Paris to do a site-specific film that is uh, geolocative. So you go to a different place in a park or uh, in a, uh, a square, and you get a piece of information, a story about a film that you put together as you move through the site. So thinking about the things I love and I think we all love about movies and then how do we bring this into the ways in which we can work with uh, some new media affordances? And the last project is one that came out of a new class. Jim helped me put this together, and we got funds from the uh, MIT alum fund something. And it was very much inspired by Henry's work, and it's called Transmedia Storytelling, which I think is the first transmedia storytelling class in, in the curriculum. So I worked with students for... Um, two semesters, and then this semester we're doing an independent study. And what we're working on is an augmented reality game that we're going to roll out in the fall of 2010 that's about MIT. So the students are the leads on this. They're designing it, and I'm mentoring it, because they're the ones who know what the experience is. We're designing it for um, pre-orientation. So students who come, they need to learn the campus. They need to learn how to collaborate. So that's the goal of the exercise. Uh, geolocative, film design, here's the map, uh, here's some pieces, uh, no.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Um, so um, when I got the topics that we were going to talk about here today, uh, one of the first things that came to mind was Uh, my first semester as a student in CMS. And um, we all came from different fields. So uh, there were three people from architecture for some weird reason. I don't know how that happened. We had three people from architecture, film studies, myself from literature, uh, someone who came from math but was an activist. Um, So we were from all over the place. And the first thing that we thought was, okay, we know things... That the others don't. We all come from different fields, so let's teach each other. And for me, that was the one of the big things of coming to CMS, learning from other people. Uh, the idea that you learn with other people, uh, you work together, but working together is not, you know, dividing the tasks, but actually um, knowing what can I learn from other people, knowing who is the person that is going to help me get this thing done in a certain way. So um, what was um, interesting, I just came back from Madrid, and um, I went to my old school and spoke with my old teachers, and when I was trying to explain to them what I do, I was telling them, well, look, what I do now is not that much different from what I used to do. I'm still interested in the crossover from one medium into another, uh, but when I used to do Uh, Shakespeare on film now I'm doing you know video games and stories and how they overlap but what really went totally over their heads was that in order to understand how that works it's not only that I study games and I play games and I analyze games uh is that I make them and that you need to get your hands dirty in order to understand how they actually work and um some of my teachers were, thought that that was really interesting and really fascinating, and they wanted to know more about it. Uh, other teachers would look at me like, why would you do that? They, it's, it was a challenge for me to get across the value of actually making things in order to understand, uh, understand the field, uh, particularly you know, technological uh, limitations, how the technology is really shaping uh, the content, what you are doing, so that was that's been one thing that CMS does that in other places, you know, some people might, you know, uh, appreciate, but others are like, why would you do that? Um, and it was also a bit of a challenge to explain what I'm teaching now. I'm teaching the course on writing for video games, and I'm not sure there are any other courses on writing for video games uh, we're in the same place. It's like I didn't have. Uh, any model syllabi. I had to come up with my own. Uh, there were certain, you know, interactive narrative courses and things like those, but my goal was how are, how do we write for games? How do we tell stories in a game? Or how do we build stories in a game? And um, for me, it's, it's been challenging, but it's also lots of fun because, again, it's not about teaching content. It's about exploring. It's about problem solving. And the idea of, teaching a class on writing for video games really means... Understanding what the problems of writing for video games are—we're not telling stories, you know, as as we would in a film or as we would in a novel. There are things that we can learn from those. There are things that we learn from uh, from traditional storytelling that we can bring to games. But really, this is a new field. So, so the idea of teaching is is teaching problem solving, and the idea of encouraging creativity is creative problem solving, always based on what's. Been done before, always with an uh, an awareness as what's been done before. It's not a matter of making things alone. And Henry mentioned this yesterday. It's not a matter of making things alone. It's also a matter of understanding what's been done, understanding what the limitations have been, understanding what the problems are, understanding what are the possible avenues of of development. What what are the things that we haven't done? How can we make them? Uh, so that's basically my experience in CMS as a way of, of coming from a traditional humanities literature background and challenging some of, of, of the assumptions of what humanities can do and bringing your know, creativity, hands-on experience, and how that can actually uh, help our understanding of what humanities are. Oh,
6: okay. Okay, so, um, thanks. Uh, it's about 12.20. Is anyone hungry? <laughs> um, I asked because I've got a bunch of oddwalla bars here, and uh, I'm going to give them out uh, if people can help me answer a couple of questions. Um, let's see. Well, that's
5: buying time. That's interesting.
6: Yeah. And um, all right, so when I, um, as uh, Jim uh, introduced earlier, I was an MIT undergrad uh, as well as a grad student. And uh, uh, I took the standard path to grad school um, in, in the sort of MIT sense, uh, which is to do a sort of undergraduate thesis uh, as preparatory work for my master's work. Um, so I put together this transmitter story bible uh, for a project that will involve multiple storytelling techniques. And uh, once I realized that I had put in, made the entire story about a very blatant Mary Sue protagonist, um, I moved on to other projects. But... Um, there was one form of storytelling that did stick with me, and uh, I, cu- I ended up writing my thesis on it. Uh, which, what was it? And you must give your, your answer in the form of, of a question. What is a video game? No. Nope. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> nice catch. CMS is not necessarily yeah. an athletic program. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So... Um, Live action role, uh, li- li- live action role playing, and live action role playing games were actually uh, my introduction to collaboration. Um, that was uh, prior to me coming to MIT. I was used to sort of being thinking of myself as a sort of Renaissance man. I could do everything. I could do animation. I could write code. I, um, I, I fancied myself a storyteller, te- and um, of course, I was not good at any of those things. But I thought I was. I was an undergrad, um, but. But then, um, it was a meeting at Henry's place, probably right after a colloquium, uh, when I uh, ran into Ting, uh, uh, Jing Wang, and a short discussion quickly revealed that I had absolutely no experience working with other people. Um, and so live-action role-playing uh, and the creation of live-action role-playing games, sure, I, I got into it because it was useful for my thesis. Uh, but what it really did teach me was it taught me how to work with other people who were more experienced than me in many ways and who were smarter than me in, in many ways and, um, and had complementary skills. So, uh, so that's kind of how my collaborative work. Uh, st- uh, st- uh, my collaborative experience as, as, as the creator started. Now, um, after I got into, into CMS, shortly after 9-11, um, the entire, my entire CMS cohort, graduate cohort, came, came together and what was uh, now in retrospect a fairly typical reaction from CMS to a catastrophic event. Um, priority number one was to gather and share information. Um, So I was the webmaster for this project, and uh, basically just creating a basic data architecture, formatting disparate text documents into standardized presentation format. And the goal was to archive a very powerful moment in media history, in the hopes that one day it will serve as a valuable resource. Name of the project? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Reconstructions. Um, was really, really ambitious. Um, and I think it's still running on the web, uh, although the URLs probably changed. Um, and uh, it's, it taught me something about aiming bigger than I could possibly imagine. Um, I, I, I had a small piece of it. I had the get the, the files online and in a readable form part of it. Um, and everybody else had a small piece of it. Get information from Turkey. Get information from, uh, from, uh, from this part of the world. Get this one scholar's r- read on it. And then they spread it on to their friends and their friends spread it on to other friends. And we're getting information uh, um, and interpretations of the same event from all over the world from a range of different uh, creators and scholars and lay people. Um, it was... Amazing, and I couldn't imagine that anything like that could have even happened, uh, but it, that introduced me kind of like the whole um, multiplication effect that you can get with today's uh, communications technologies and the communities that already exist uh, and intersect. We just, that was just the first time I really saw it in action. Um, now, um, so, so after that extremely... Energizing project. Uh, um, I, I kind of threw myself into the Games to Teach project, which was the research project um, that I was part of a grad student um, in 2001, and then later turned into the Education Arcade in 2003. So I, was, um, I had to develop a number of playable game prototypes based on the ideas that were generated by my fellow grad stu- students. And working with undergraduates, uh, these projects gave me ideas about what will eventually shape some of the structural principles for the Singapore MIT Gambit Game Lab. Um, such as, the, for example, the focus of the sum, um, on the summer as an intense uh, focused prototyping uh, uh, session. Now, we've already heard a, a bit about Revolution, uh, which was our colonial American role-playing game. Um, there were two other games that were developed roughly about the same time. And these were games that, that, that could actually be played. So I have two candy bars. Anybody knows what, what they are? Supercharged. Supercharged, yes. Um, Actually, Clara said it first, but... <laughs> Are you hungry? <laughs> no. No, okay, all right. Who said it?
5: Huh? He got one.
6: Okay, all right.
5: <laughs>
6: what was the other one? I was not actually writing code on this one.
4: Um, you can't answer, Clara. Um, hmm?
6: Huh? Close? Before that. <laughs> "Environmental Detectives. Yeah, I think Susanna said it first, right? No, no. No, that was wrong. Okay, all right. Marley gets it, but I don't think I can throw that far. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to try, though. (laughs) Now you have two candy bars (laughs) because I just broke. (laughs) I'm glad I didn't hit anyone. (laughs) So so those were interesting um, because... Again, those were uh, those were a different mode of engagement that I was used to. Supercharge was the first project where I worked as a project manager, uh, and Environmental Detectives was kind of uh, the first project where I was on the periphery, uh, where I was just sort of lending my experience as a consultant to people who clearly understood the challenges way better than I did, um, and yet were still interested in my opinion. Um, that's kind of the the amazing richness that I that I find about CMS. You know, the fact that there is actually very little ego. Um, everyone understands that somebody else is, you know, very very good at, at, at what they're doing, and yet people are still interested to solicit more feedback, uh, more different ways of looking at the same prop, prop, prop project to find that one bit of nugget that's going to make, you know, the project amazing. So, um, so another example of that. Um, uh, I've been surprisingly riveted at a CMS staff meeting since 2009. Um, so uh, we've seen presentations on uh, radio drama, model trains, Japanese uh, culture, documentaries on J- Jamaican music, live action role playing games as well. Um, and, uh, and these are presentations by staff talking about talking about OK, this getting hard. <laughs> Close. Um, Actually, yeah, passions will be a better answer than what I had in mind. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Okay,
7: there's a camera right behind you. (laughs) Temperate, temperate. (laughs) Well,
6: thanks. Um. The passions, the hobbies, the things that they were doing on the site that, you know, um, informed them even before they joined CMS. And that's the community that's been growing around here. You know, there's the faculty, there's the grad students, but there's also all the staff uh, that came to CMS and are working here because they're interested in media and they're interested in um, in these topics in incredible depths. Uh, and uh, discovering that it wasn't just what's written on the curriculum that, uh, that, that, that gives us learning experiences was really important to me. Um, I have one candy bar left, so just one more. So every summer, uh, the Singapore MIT Gambit Game Lab brings about 40 Singapore students to MIT to work with students, staff, and faculty over here. And uh, the students from Singapore are actually already pretty good at what they do. The programmers know how to write code. The artists are good at color theory, anatomy, illustration, animation. Uh, so we teach them more about how to put all of these skills together and make a project together. Um, but we also attempt to challenge some basic industry assumptions about how games should be made. Um, and uh, this is one of my biggest bugbears in the game industry, but also sometimes with, with academia. Or MIT. I know. <laughs> one more? The
5: question right. is, what's your biggest Crunch.
8: <laughs> yes.
6: What's that Rick? OK. All right. <laughs> Nice. Okay, so that was the last candy bar. Um, Everyone else, you have to wait till the next break. Um, The one thing, uh, this is my opinion about creativity, is that it is best done when you actually have had a good night's sleep. Um, when you've uh, when you actually had time to think and time to reflect uh, on on uh, on the project that you're working on, to while you're creating, have that time to bring everything that you've learned, uh, possibly from CMS, possibly from, from other hum- humanities co- uh, classes, possibly just from your own uh, from inputs from other aspects of life. Um, and that's when people get most creative. Um, Unfortunately, that's not necessarily how a lot of industry, and again, not a lot of how academia runs. Um, Students, in fact, learn how to crunch from school, Um, and that's one of those things that I've been trying to work really, really hard to to. To change in everything that we've done in Gambit, all the way from how the, the lab works and uh, from the staff level to the, how we teach the, the students, we emphasize the importance of a good night's sleep and, uh, and the practices that are going to be necessary to give you that, because we think better games come out of that. So, that was the game. <laughs> Thanks.
1: Yes.
2: I brought no, uh, I brought no food, so <laughs> yeah. I'll be considerably... Lower energy. Uh, so, I'd just start off by saying uh, my my experience coming to CMS was uh, very much what Clara described of uh, arriving and, and having um, all of my uh, everyone in my cohort coming from very very different backgrounds. So, I came from software development, but also had um, an interest in academic theory. Uh, Reka, who was on the last panel, uh, came from radio. Uh, we had uh, Lisa, who's a painter. We had a whole range of people, and in that context, um, you know, learning how to um, it, basically, having a class discussion is a form of collaboration in that sense, like you can 't even uh, just to be able to have a meaningful discussion, you have to learn to think across um, across those disciplines uh, so just a, a short note on that. I will talk a little bit about revolution, uh, which which matt uh, I worked with both Matt from the last panel and Philip on quite a bit um, because it 's been in my mind a lot recently. Revolution was um, a, a very uh, a very interesting collaborative experience for me because. Uh, we had essentially probably four of us: me, Matt, Philip, and uh, Nick uh, Nick Hunter, who was a uh, CMS undergrad at the time, uh, who were basically the core core people that that were on the project for the longest period of time. And um, there weren't one thing that struck me is there were never necessarily very clear roles defined as to who was doing what. There were there were various degrees of overlap between us in terms of uh, varying levels of uh, technical skill or game design skill or, or, or graphic arts. Uh, but there was never a kind of a sense of you know, uh, you're the programmer, you're the project manager, you're the designer. We would kind of nominally say those things, but in actuality, um, a lot of the design was just uh, a lot of a lot of conversations. And it's it's very fruitful to have a project like that where I could be you know literally one day uh, reading uh, scanned uh, the the Williamsburg uh, the the newspaper from Colonial Williamsburg. I could be reading scanned uh, copies of that uh, you know reading stories from the 1770s. Um, and the next day I could be actually trying to, uh, figure out a rule set, uh, an algorithmic rule set that would model, uh, how information would spread through a small community. Um, and the next day I could be, you know, trying to write some code to help out. So, um, those are to me, that kind of experience is something I got out of CMS and, and try to bring to my professional life as well. And it, it's, the reason it's been in my mind is because I just uh, started this new job at this company, Kickstarter, that I mentioned, and because it's a startup, um, the, the roles are very le- are, are not so well defined there either. And this is something I've been um, it's caused me a lot of stress prior to starting there. I, I, I've been back in the corporate world for the last uh, five years, and I'm used to having I, I've been more used to having that clearly defined role. And so before I started, I kept thinking, I, I kept asking them, well, what is my job? What what am I doing exactly? Like, how you know how will I fit in?" Um, and their attitude is very much like, you know, don't worry about it. You'll show up and we'll figure it out and it'll, it'll be fine. Um, and, and so this is what brought me back to thinking about revolution as, as me realizing, hey, this is the first time in, in several years that, that this is a similar environment um, where, uh, you know, I, I start to think of, um, of my role, which is uh, what we would call product development in the Internet world. Is, um, it, it's, it's by its nature a very nebulous role. It's really about, it, there's the herding cats aspect of it. Um, I, I like to think of it as controlling, controlling the chaos. There's, everyone has a lot of good input and it's figuring out how to channel that in meaningful ways. Um, and so again, it comes back very much to conversation. Um, and let's see. Another thing um, that the nature of creativity is something that Matt and I just happened to be discussing uh, last night I think is, is the role of uh, accident in, um, in creativity. And I do firmly believe that a lot, of, a lot of the best ideas we had for revolution, a lot of the best ideas I have in my own work, um, they feel very accidental in the sense that they, um, they emerge from kind of continually trying to reconfigure the problem. And you can only do that effectively when you have people coming um, at, at the problem from very different angles. Um, and that's actually... So, so, so conversation, again, is, is where that comes from at a very personal level of, of people in a room together. Uh, but when Jim asked about... Um, creativity in in the age of the internet um, I also think very much of just my browsing experience so one thing that um, that the internet has enabled me to do is literally just the accidental browsing experience of coming across so many things that I would not come across before are just this subconscious layer of things that I bring up later into my uh, creative discussions Um, so yeah I'll leave it at that for now.
4: So um, I'm, I'm actually glad to be uh, going last in the sequence of introductions because it, it kind of encapsulates two things that I remember fondly about my CMS experience. One, that if I was able to be in the position to be the last person to answer a question, then I didn't have to worry about figuring out what to say because I could generally just agree with everything that had already been said because it was well said and covered a range of, of perspectives. Um, the, the other thing that encapsulates about uh, the time that I spent at CMS is, and I'm more comfortable saying this now than I was when I got to CMS, I'm comfortable starting off my answer to a question by saying I really don't know the answer to the question. Um, but that really won't stop me from talking about it until someone asks me to stop. <laughs> um, there, there are, so, so a couple thoughts to share. One being, um, there's, is everyone familiar with uh, the, those motivational posters that have <clears throat> the amazing images on them of an eagle soaring and then say some word like, you know, aspiration, you never know how far you can go, things like that? Mm-hmm. There's, so there's a line of, of uh, appropriate response posters called demotivators. Demotivators. Um, and there's one in particular that I love that I've been trying to get a copy of for our, our office for a while, not because I believe in it, but because I enjoy it, that, that has all these hands clasping over the center of the table, and it says teamwork, because none of us are as stupid as all of us. Um, and, and, you know, I wouldn't know how to begin trying to define creativity, but but I find the idea of collaboration an interesting, I guess, back pathway into it. Um, and, and that functions for me on a couple levels. One is that, uh, as... as James said, while I was here, I spent a lot of time studying alternate reality games and crowd and audience behaviors, um, and was particularly fascinated with an idea that Henry, uh, through convergence culture, was spending a lot of time on when I first got here, which was collective intelligence. And, uh, you know, one thing I've become particularly bad at since leaving CMS is every day that goes by, I get poor at remembering how to cite people for things. I just start thinking that I thought of them, or assume people won't care who thought of them. But I know that, that uh, there was a philosopher, and which one slips my mind right now, that said, you know, the most important thing to him was that he knew how little he knew. Uh, and I thought that what was amazing about CMS and about my cohort and about the people who were here was that I didn't need to know how little I knew because they all knew how little I knew. And I don't mean that in a self-deprecating way. What I mean is that it's very hard inside your own box to realize all the things that you know nothing about. And the beauty of the time that, that I think I spent here, and it sounds, from what everyone says, like a lot of people have had the same experience, is being put in a room with a lot of people who aren't there to find out the exact same thing you are, and who bring with them a million different things that you would never have even known you didn't know about. And so the time that I spent here was incredibly valuable to me, because I spent most of it not just learning that I didn't know things, but learning all of those things, or at least learning where they intersected with what I was interested in and how they could change the way that I thought about what I was doing. Um, so, I, uh, yeah, I'm not going to get teary on a panel, certainly not this in the morning, early in the morning, but... Um, The thing that I continue to remember most fondly about CMS uh, is probably just the time I got to spend with my cohort and an incredibly intensely curious group of people who always wanted to add whatever they knew about something. Um, Since I left here, I've ended up at an agency called Big Spaceship, which is, uh, I think the best thing about it might be sharing the name of it because usually people either laugh because they think I'm kidding or they, um, they say, what is that, a nursery school? Um, But one of the nice things about Big Spaceship is it's it's a a creative agency and we we specialize in digital. And we have a variety of disciplines, uh, teams in-house. So we have creative technologists, we have designers, we have project managers. And then uh, starting around the time I got there, we have strategists, though we're still looking for a better word than that. Um, And one of the things that, that has been amazing about being there, and I think a perfect continuation of the time I spent at CMS, is that we don't work within disciplines. Every discipline, despite having the thing they're responsible for, is also responsible for being involved and active in every stage of a project from the time it first comes in the door till the time it leaves. And so technologists are doing the strategy component of things and strategists are figuring out what kinds of design decisions we should be making. And so long as at the end of the day someone's responsible for things, everybody gets to be involved in everything because everyone finds, I think the same way that we did at CMS, that their own work is stronger, even in the things they're best at, for doing it with people who maybe know nothing about it or know a completely different way of looking at it. Um, let's see. Like I said, I, I don't know uh, the answer to the question, but there may be one or two other things worth uh, continuing to talk about. Um, I think one, one thing I've found interesting, especially in looking at the questions for this panel, you know, the, the relationship between creativity and collaboration, is that you know creativity, when you describe it that way, is a noun. It's a thing that something can have. Um, and I think I'm interested in some ways in the idea of creativity as an adjective, as something that things are. And I'm interested in the idea that rather than creativity being something you know, that we set out to do, I'm setting out to be a creative person, that creativity or or something being creative is, in a lot of cases, a byproduct of being open to it happening in a collaborative way. That whether you intend to or not, you get to a place where you think differently and come up with different solutions if you're comfortable openly functioning in a collaborative environment on an ongoing basis. Um, and then just because I... Uh, I like to contradict other people, I'll I'll pick on something that Philip said about um, crunch being one of the biggest problems, and I'm not just going to say this because my thesis uh, got turned in an hour before it was due. Um, I I completely agree with you and have been grateful since leaving here that I've been able to sleep better, so I I think the sleep matters component is important, Um, but one particularly uh, iconic memory I have of the time I spent here was during IAP, um, and in the I think it started out as a game design workshop and by the time uh, I participated in it, it was a transmedia experience design workshop. And I got thrown into a group with four or five people, two of whom I had never met before, an undergraduate, someone from another program. Um, And then we had 24 hours basically to go away, come up with a concept and come back, prepared to pitch it in front of an audience. And that was the best all-nighter that I've had or certainly had while I was here. And while I don't think that the best work you can do comes out of not sleeping, um, I continue to learn that the hard way on a, on a regular basis, um, I do think that there's something amazing about how collaboration happens in compressed time frames, because there's not even time... You know, Academics are generally, or they were in this program, very good about avoiding ego. But I think you can still... It's easy to become precious with ideas that you spend time investing yourself in and to take some time to step away from them and say maybe the thing that I find so fascinating here isn't as fascinating as I think, or at least not in the exact way that I first thought it was. Um, and what I remember about that particular experience is that with no time to spare clinging to ideas, everyone just ends up stepping up, saying, here's what I'm good at, here's what I'm not good at, what can everybody else do? And you kind of get to a level of collaboration quickly that it sometimes takes people weeks or months to actually get around to. So that was a, a fun memory for me. And I don't think I've answered the question, which was actually my goal, to, to not answer the question. So... I
1: don't think I know what the question is. But uh, anyway, uh, that's great. That's uh, lots of different uh, rich experiences. And, and I think on this on this uh, note, uh, one of the things I'm wondering is uh, the elements of, of, of CMS that actually brought this working together in the various research groups. I'm wondering if some of you could uh, reflect a little more specifically about some of the research groups you worked with and some of the problems and some of the ways you solved them and how those... Elements uh, made in made the whole topic of uh, or the whole process of uh, creativity happen. So the research
6: groups specifically. Um, one of the things I remember about games to teach well, it was back in '01, and really there wasn't anything like a, a cohesive game studies curriculum at that time. Um, was well, so I walked in to that research group uh, with a vague idea of what they were trying to do, and I was handed this reader, uh, which was, you know, painstakingly, painstakingly put together. Uh, with, if I correct me if I'm wrong, Henry, but I believe it was you, Kurt, and Alex Chisholm who put it together, and um, it is to this day one of the best overviews of game studies theory that I've ever had. Um, I still consult this sort of uh, taped-together, loose-bound collection of Xeroxes. Um, The the research groups, in my opinion, in many ways, were the best systematic way to learn about a topic in which there wasn't time to actually create a new curriculum for them, because it's so new. and uh sure a lot of the learning comes from actually trying to solve problems uh, and you don't ever learn a topic nearly as well as when you have to teach it to somebody else and a lot of uh, a lot of the research pro- projects have a very strong educational component of now that we know this how do we convey it to somebody else uh so so from 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 the systematic angle of the research groups being a good environment for us to get an overview of what's quickly going to become uh, a field that 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 uh, will be popping up in in other uni- uh, un- universities. We just did it first, um, and and then actually helping hel- helping seed that growth by turning what we know into something that other people can use and teach about. Uh, I personally felt was in it was great to be part of that process. Um, and and it, it reinforced what I knew about the, what, what I learned and what I knew about that topic uh, in a way that I don't think I would have done in a classroom.
3: I mean, uh, this is not uh, research group based, but more uh, in terms of working with undergraduates. Um, sometimes, I mean, because of the age uh, and we all remember this from growing up, it's really helpful just to say, yeah, let's try. Let's try and let's find spaces where the consequences are not so terrible if it sucks because mm-hmm. let's find out kind of what the edges are. So I, I hear that and I hear that in everyone's stories. And that's a, a, especially for the people come here who in some ways there's an obligation to be to master things and to be so excellent <laughs> to find spaces where we can work together. And you're like, we're really experimenting with the edges and it's it's just fantastic with the students when they realize or or they say, Yeah, okay, let's let's just try. So yeah. I I like that quite a bit. I'm
1: wondering if there uh were any failures that
4: actually stuck in your mind that <laughs> you actually learned something from <laughs> I can yeah, I'll take the mic for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is great, this is the most self deprecating panel I've done in ages. Um, so uh, Failure kind of, kind of fits into what I was interested in sharing about the Convergence Culture Consortium, not because it failed, but because um, there were two, I think, pretty unique challenges the, the year that I got here, which was the same year that it was starting. And so we, we had two things to overcome. One was that unlike, I think, most of the other research groups, at least that year, we didn't exactly know what our job was to do. Um, we knew that we were all there. We knew that we already had certain commitments mm-hmm. to produce and deliver certain kinds of information, but we had no idea how to get from where we were starting to, to the end of that path. Um, the other half and you know i not being here i don 't know to what extent this is still an issue that c three struggles with um, was the fact that there 's something fairly unorthodox about a research program in an institution like MIT mm-hmm. being funded by money from Turner Broadcasting Yahoo Fidelity and advertising agency you know that's that falls very close to what in in academia is you know selling out to corporate interest mm-hmm. um and I think for a lot of us, certainly, um, for for me and Sam Ford, who was supposed to be on this panel and, and couldn't make it, um, he went into public relations after he left. I went into advertising and marketing ostensibly, though that's not, I think for for both of us, we don't really think about it in the terms that the industry's called, because the, the trend that we came to, I think, over the two years that we spent here and the continued relationship we have with C3 was realizing that, um, you know, what looked like us taking money from corporate interests, what looked like us telling, you know, media companies how to advertise better, how to sell better, was actually, it kind of comes back to another interesting variation on in collaboration. It was shifting from a model where, at, you know, in my case, what advertising and marketing represents is the ability to take the interests of one group and impose those interests on another group by convincing that group, you know, the second group, consumers, that they want something that's for sale or that they're being asked to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the work that Henry was already doing in convergence culture and that set the, the groundwork for where we went in C3 was realizing that you know, our goal wasn't to support the work that the industry was already doing in a better way or to deliver information that would help them do the job they already thought they were doing, Mm -hmm. but to start delivering information that would help them rethink what their actual goals were and what their job was. Um, You know, I I think of what we were doing more as a process of helping align what they were going to do anyway in a way that was useful or interesting or valuable to the people they actually wanted to have relationships with. Um, I'm trying to think if that in any way answers the question about our failures. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, we I think C3 still continues to struggle with, because academia isn't generally responsive to working with corporate interests, but I think what it looks like on the surface and what looks like kind of a compromise or a failure has actually been an incredibly rich learning experience, at least for everyone involved, and I think for all of the groups that we've worked with, because, you know, we already see with, I guess it's been four or five years now since C3 started, and a lot of the ideas that started in that first year, the research papers we did, the ways that we built on what Henry started in convergence culture, are now increasingly common boardroom language. They're common things that come up in meetings, and even if people don't fully understand the ideas behind them, they are increasingly hungry, too, and that's an incredibly valuable thing, I think, for a group like C3 to have been able to contribute.
1: Do you think there are are forms of uh, creativity or uh, stimuli to creativity that academia can learn from the corporate world? I mean, there seems to be this model that, well, there's this world out there that, you know, we can invent things for. Is there, so, is there something out there that is being invented or that is uh, vital or that is really quick that academics can learn from? Okay. Uh,
5: well, the one thing that academia can learn from industry is to get things done and finishing things and actually delivering them. I think that that's the biggest thing. Um, Because you can think about things forever, Uh, but, you know, actually having something that you can show and and that has an impact in the world, I think that's that's one of the biggest things. The other is, you know, and this is a very CMS thing, and this comes from, you know, Henry, making them accessible, you know, outside of academia too. Uh, It's very sobering in Gambit where uh, part of our staff comes from the games industry when you're trying to explain something and you're talking about all these theories and using all this jargon, and the rest of the room looks at you like, what? did you just talk about uh, can you just speak in English uh, and um, that idea of you know really getting across like is, is, it's not that you are dumbing down your theories you don't have to uh, you just have to think very well about what you're saying and how you're saying it and what words you're using um, and also like you know go to the point uh, it's a, this is a humanities and, and, and I'm guilty of it too uh, we can just talk about things forever but um, really, when they, we're asked like what but what is it that you exactly mean, like okay, well, I mean in, you just go on and and it's like no, just in a nutshell, you know really go to the point, I think that that's the, the the trying to get across trying to get across uh concisely, even if it's not um you know using all the academic jargon, I think that that's that's one of the things that we can learn you know in general terms. or or Jim maybe just the the, I think that it's
3: also learning from not just industry but um, art, culture sites of resistance Mm -hmm. I mean I showed my students the trailer to the Banksy movie The Street Artist and yeah I'm a fan of Banksy but it's also where are the places where we can create free space where can we imagine and I think that (laughs) I'm absolutely engaged in designing and thinking about pervasive media but I'm also engaged and want to encourage my students and hopefully people can encourage me to say yeah let's find some some open spaces as well so Mm -hmm. that that's important to speak better speak Mm -hmm. more clearly but also to adventure some you know (laughs) I mean I don't think you're against that Claire so I wasn't (laughs) looking at you I will
8: pick up on
4: the, the phrase that Claire used of, you know, it's important to learn to get to the points. I think the, the other thing that, that academia doesn't always do as well at is as industry. And I think, you know, again, one of the things C3 was really great at was figuring out what both academia and the industry could learn from each other is kind of this idea of accountability for having a point. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to step on the minefield that was a bunch of the stuff that came up in the applied humanities discussion, but... I think it's very easy in an academic context to become fascinated by ideas for the sake of ideas and then in many cases produce an amazing body of of work or literature or knowledge that's never, you know, whether it's meant to be read by someone else or not, in many cases it doesn't. It goes into a library and it gets shown to the handful of people who you, you know, show it to or who are specifically interested in producing more knowledge on the exact same topic. But that's about the extent of impact it has. And then, you know, it's, it's not that there needs to be more of a point to it than that, but that knowledge to me, it seems is incredibly useful when it actually affects things or changes things or moves things forward. Um, When I was first trying to decide whether to come to CMS, uh, there was a chat for prospective students, and I actually asked Henry, um, and I apologize for the indelicacy of language in this, what there was about CMS that wasn't masturbatory, to come here and and spend all this time studying something that's interesting to yourself, but what is it actually going to be used for? And he talked about um, going in front of, of Congress to talk about Columbine and help reshaped the way people thought about what the impact of video games was. And I think a testament to what CMS has accomplished in particular is the number of times that I run back into theses from all of the different years of students who have especially come through the grad program in a ton of different contexts, that they float around in the art world, in, the in, in business, in industry, and it's surprising how much people have heard of them. Um, I, I think that's a really good testament to being responsible for producing something that at least keeps the discussion moving forward.
1: Just one more, and then we'll open things up to the audience. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about where you see, uh, given what you have experienced with collaboration now, in both in your work and also your years at MIT, where you see collaboration going in the future? What, you know, is there something new? Or do you imagine other forms of collaboration or some kind of evolution taking place here? Or do you have any thoughts on that?
5: Same.
1: You think, you think we've arrived at the ultimate uh, framework for collaboration, or are well, we, I would bring up, um, or is it something that we can't really? It's going to happen, but we predicting it is almost. Yeah.
2: So, well, so I would mention again this. Um, sorry to sound like I'm shilling for my new uh, for my new company, but <laughs> <that's> <laughs> so so Kickstarter is is basically a we like to describe it as a funding platform uh, for creative projects, which. Basically, the way it works is someone has a project of some kind they want to do. It can be very broad. It can be anything from, uh, you know, I want to record my first album. I want to make a documentary film. Uh, we have someone that's sailing around the world by themselves based on money they raised on Kickstarter. They put up a pitch. They, it's, it's basically a story. They tell a story about what kind of project they want to do. And they solicit money from people within a certain time frame. So they have a funding goal and, um, and a time limit. And the way it works is it generates, a, it generates a story. It generates attention as to whether they're going to reach the goal. And if they don't reach the goal, no one that commits funds to the project is charged at all. So there's no, there's no money lost or gained. Um, and what it does is it, it, it's really created this, this form of collaboration between what would have been considered the audience and the creators, I think. So it's, it, brings the, um, it brings the people who are, are providing the, it creates a kind of affinity commerce where the people that are funding um, become really deeply involved in the story of, of uh, what's being produced. Um so I see that as a kind of um, a kind of collaboration that I see that's uh,
6: that's encouraging one, one, other th- one other thought about creativity i was um uh, that I was just reminded uh, from from what Brett just said as well as what Henry said yesterday about uh about the work that he had to do to get his ideas out on the blog and podcasts and uh, trying to that seems to be <laughs> Um, a lot of lessons that we're now relearning about trying to get people to be interested in the idea before you actually need to put too much time into it. Um, and finding out who your audience is going to be before, uh, before you're, you're all finished. Because um, some of your most fruitful collaborations are going to come out from those initial out, uh, outreach and getting feedback even at those early stages when someone's putting up a pitch on Kickstarter or uh, uh, when when Henry is emailing the film studies uh, uh, email lists uh, for instance with, with with his opinions it's um, being being able to get to and being willing to put put yourself out there and say, This is what I think will be an awesome thing to try uh, or an awesome area to explore um, who who out there is also interested in this um, it's now something that Probably it's nothing new, but we kind of lost the skill on how to do that. And I think that right now we're finding ways to to recover that and great, get great collaborations out of this. Jim, can I just
0: follow up this point? There's something that's been implicit in what a lot of you guys talked about, and I think it, hey, you lived it and you know it, but it might not be so clear for everyone else. I think the collaborative dimension that we've tried to do both in the classroom and especially through the projects here has been... Really interesting, and a real a real future direction that we might think a lot more about in terms of uh, humanities-based education. In the sciences and in engineering, teamwork is taken for granted. In the humanities, it's really the work of, of of monks. You know, you go off and you you work on your text and you write your article and you and that's it. There's not a lot of Interaction. Part of that happens because of the monodisciplinarity of studies. So, I mean, I did film studies and I sat in a room full of people who did film studies and we were all kind of doing variants of the same thing. So, in a certain sense, we were in competition with one another rather than collaborating. What you folks have talked about is the really disparate the mix, huh? the mix of expertises you're sitting there with people from very different disciplinary mm-hmm. backgrounds. In fact, when we recruit, we always look for most of you, if you think of your own backgrounds, there's a bit of schizophrenia. Someone's was a math major and a religious studies major. Someone was a, has an interest in coding, but they're also into philosophy. We look for people that are a little unstable to begin with, and maybe creativity <laughs> comes from... Maybe creativity comes from instability, but we really look for people with very different expertises. And that doesn't lead to competition. It, it encourages collaboration. And I think the real magic of the research projects, besides the wonderful work they've done in each of their areas, has been that it brings people together to work you know, in real world terms. By that, I mean like you're going to produce something, you've got to meet deadlines, you've got to deliver. And it also makes people work together collaboratively on projects. And that's been a terrific, I mean, if, as I read the programs the uh, last 10 years, a, a terrific pedagogical dimension to what we do. And something we do and take for granted, but I think it's not very commonly done in, uh, in most humanities areas. So in terms of thinking, what's the future? Maybe it's not our future, but I hope, I hope it's the future for uh, more of the humanities. And yeah, Ian, I, sorry, I apologize for jumping the queue. Can I <laughs> ask a question Philip
4: Yes. Um, I'm curious from what William was saying I mean, in, in C3 and the projects I worked on there was actually still a fair amount even when thinking happened in collaboration production often happened as, as one or two people turning something out and it seems like Gambit is one of the better examples of, of a kind of output that can't be done by any one person at the end of the day that it requires a massive number of people with a massive number of skills to make a, something as detailed as a video game happen. How is how does collaboration consensus kind of happen within Gambit? I mean, you know, if, if everyone has different ideas about what they they think yeah, the game should be, how do you how do you work towards a collaborative output of a single product that way?
6: Hmm. Um, okay, so shared shared goals and clear, clearly stated shared goals are going to be are extremely important for that. And um, I also do want to point out that we try to actually limit how large our groups can possibly get. Uh, we we certainly have the resources to create a 60-person team working on one project right now, and we and that. That's not what we're doing. Um, so uh, I think one way that, that, that absolutely does work, some things that William mentioned earlier, was to make sure that everybody in the team has complementary skills. Uh, you know, we, we are deliberately putting people into teams, most of them are at the undergraduate level, um, who can't do everything. And, as, and, and they may not know that going in. You know, uh, but as soon as one of our programming trained students sees the output from the art school trained students uh, and they realize that, wow, I could not have done that even if I spent, you know, 20, uh, 2, hours on on, on on that, they start to realize together we could do something much bigger than that. Um, but keeping the focus is the is, is, is then the hard part. Uh, you know, it's like we could do anything, and and, and we could change the world. Um, yes, but we want you to answer this one question uh, with your game that has to be made in nine weeks and uh, it has to ship. By the day, uh, which is which is uh, what Clara was talking about earlier. And um, I, I think I think along the lines of what you were talking about, your best brainstorming session in the, uh, in the, work, in the transmitter workshop um, also works really, really well uh, in Gambit is that we, we enforce constraints. Uh, they're very, very, very tight constraints so that your expectation about what you can possibly accomplish, even with all of the resources at your hand, uh, it's it's kind of a uh, it's, it's 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 scoped down and 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 you focus on the things that you can actually complete more often than not even after scoping down what actually comes out on the other end still defies what you originally expected um, so so I fully agree that you know that constraints lead to creativity uh, and how you impose those constraints will pretty much um, can, can, can make or break a team project. I think.
2: So could you maybe just mention the Scrum process? And I'm curious what you, <laughs> okay. how successful you feel that's been as putting constraints around the process. And for anyone who doesn't know
6: what Scrum is, you should okay. probably mention. Um, Scrum is a project method. It, it, it's, it's project methodology Kool Aid. Um, it, it is it, it, and Kool Aid that I was very very happy to drink at the beginning of uh, off of Gambit. Um, it is basically uh, it it is basically one version of iterative development, uh, specifically tuned for project de- uh, for software development. And uh, the idea is you've got, a, you've got a bunch of goals that are ranked in terms of priority. And you don't start on the ones that are low in priority until the top priority ones are made. And uh, once the top priority ones are made, you've got to test it. And you can use that feedback to decide whether all those things that you thought were a good idea uh, previously were actually all that necessary or need to be rearranged. Um, there are a whole bunch of assumptions in Scrum that actually don't work very well in Gambit. Uh For instance, the assumption that everybody on a team is interchangeable. uh, That is actually a very weird concept, once you actually say it out loud. So, um, especially when you're putting together a whole bunch of specialists. Uh, Now, if you were putting together a whole team of people who really could do anything, uh, and there are some people in the world who are capable of of just that, uh, then I think it actually might be a very, very good way to to organize a team. But I'm not that person, (laughs) I'm not capable of doing everything it does however uh, the, 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 the bits that we've kept, the bits that basically come down to keep your team honest and really make sure that the whole team knows about what the real status of your game of your project is. you know are people enjoying it? what did it What, what did the people say about it? Okay, we said that we'd have this feature done by today. we don't why you know and and uh, and that happens every day. Those are the parts that we've kept, and uh, that's basically just knowing what. Uh, it, it's just a communication aid. It's just helping everybody on the team know what everybody else is doing. I, I don't know if you. Want.
9: <laughs> Ian. Thanks. Uh, I want to follow up on the question of uh, what. Is uh, maybe turn around the question of what academia can learn from business or learn from the outside world, I think, you know, are there some of the things that are valuable uh, about being academia that there's some benefit to not getting to the point, right? Or, or saying we don't know what the point is even and we're going to keep working. I think there's some aspects of that. Uh, but as I thought about the title of the panel and creativity and collaboration and digital, you know, one of the things that I thought separates, say, business or the way some of the stuff is thought of in the outside world, versus how we think of it in academia, has to do with intellectual property, right? And that uh, the the product of uh, creativity uh, ends up being meaningful once it's a commodity or once it's part of a sustainable business model. Um, And it strikes me that we are entering an age in which we recognize that collaborative uh, creativity uh, is one mode, if not the major mode of moving things, all sorts of things forward, uh, and that, you know, we, we're caught up with the idea of an author and the great directors, and there's lots of reasons. In fact, the humanities reproduces uh, this notion of the original uh, creative person who should own uh, the the results of that creativity, and so my question is, so are there ways that we can think about the collaborative, the digital, the creative that upset this model, or at least show us that that it's not just a matter of people have to pay for it or else there will be no creativity, which is obviously nonsense in the history of humanity, and yet it's a very powerful notion today. And yet it seems to me all of you are working in fields where it's clearly not true, you know it's not true. Uh, and even people, I think, who are defending intellectual property know it's not true. Uh, and yet we haven't found that language, it seems to me. And maybe collaborative's the word, maybe there's other things. So I guess I'm curious to hear if you have ideas of how we can uh, uh, disassociate, or, or or think about creativity outside of the property, the object, the commodity, the product, right? This kind of language that ends up being what's creative, what counts as creative once it's done, uh, that then we could bring that out of the world and actually uh, open up. I mean, Kickstarter is an interesting example. The stuff happening in the game lab is an interesting example. Uh, but what else? And, and how can we, I guess, hone the message, right? Or hone the, change the image of what creativity is uh, to get us a little bit way, away from the object and the property aspect of it.
4: Um, I don't know exactly how to answer that. The, the one thing that I would say that, to go back to the first part of your question, that, um, that I think the industry can and, and needs to learn from academia about creativity and collaboration is, uh, since leaving here, I've run into, and the thing I bang my head against the most, is missing the approach that it's not only acceptable, but preferred to take in academia, where you find the people who want to talk about something or who have ideas on it, and you get them together and you talk about it until you all figure out something you couldn't have figured out on your own. There are so many divisions between people who are competing to figure out similar or the same things that most of the people right now I think who would like to talk to each other and learn from each other about what they could be doing or to come up with things um, can't talk to each other for fear of actually getting sued the uh, you know the the phrase one of my favorite phrases that I took away from MIT was vernacular theory um, and the idea that you know even within the industry everybody's kind of they have their own way of trying to talk about what they're trying to accomplish. And I think, um, Ian, to your your question, and I apologize, I'm not turning my head, because if I do, then no one will hear me. Um, I I think uh, that even when you can't collaborate on kind of specific creative outputs, that vernacular theory is becoming a, a bigger and bigger thing. And I think academic theory is starting to find its way into that. And I think things like actually meetup is becoming an incredible tool for getting people who can't work together on specific projects or outputs together around shared interests or even areas of interest. I know there are tons of transmedia meetup groups now where people who can't collaborate on a project are getting together to talk about their generalized ideas of what they're trying to accomplish and why and what new structures would allow for that in a way that I didn't see happen outside of academia before I came to MIT. I think it's so certainly digital tools are facilitating more people trying to talk, if not in specific terms, then at least in general terms, about the actual ideas behind what they're working on. Does anyone else want to add to that?
3: I mean, this is part of the conversation last night where this is actually a a big deal, and a big problem in terms of as we participate more, we make more, we're contributing, are we not authors? Aren't we part of this story in feeding back and in, from fan fiction on to the rest of it? One of the things that, uh, in one of the formal things we see happening are we have more and more platforms that are designed to enable collaboration, but we can keep what we see as ours. And in some ways, I don't think this is a, a, a difficult idea of ours. So Flickr, which is so great, there's still my photos, and then I choose how much I want to share, and the platform has actually created this great space of participation. So that's a really, I mean, almost unproblematic example. You've got something like Second Life, and one of the reasons it was exciting for people, whether or not, how, you know, however it played out, is when I made something, it was mine, and then I could decide how to uh, spread that around. But we, we still have a very difficult kind of cultural space, between practice, how we can share because of di- digital reproduction especially, and how we're how we're contributing to the things that we like and um you know uh We have seen, I'm going to use the word revolution, even though you objected last night. I think we've seen after social internet, kind of web 2.0, we've seen the emergence of what I think is a a maker's revolution. So part of the, and it might not, it still might be niche in terms of numbers, but, but, but the energy around, I'm not just playing a game, I'm making the game. That's one of the reasons there's all this new energy around ARGs and other things, because people are... They're really active, so de facto culturally, we're seeing a shift. I don't, I can't sp- speak to legally how it's going to get sorted out.
5: Um, there's another point I want to make, and um, when we talk about intellectual property and and user content, um, it's also a matter of whose tools are we using, who is developing those tools, and there are certain tools that are, you know, proprietary that you know if you want to send your your uh, your creations through a channel the the proprietors of the tools are going to um you know select okay this is okay this is not um the game little big planet a couple of years ago i uh, was doing that it was providing a level editor and people could share them online but what happened very soon is that of course people would try to do anything and one of the first things that they tried to do was uh, making the Mario games, and because Mario is from Nintendo and Little Big Planet was a Sony game, those those levels were shut off. Uh, so I think that part of the problem of intellectual property is, you know, sorting out: do we want to have more open source or more uh, uh, tools that are available for everybody that are not conditioning the channels? Uh, you know and I, I see this in the in the field of adventure games and interactive fiction where because the tools are open there is uh there is a a openness about what kinds of games you can make of course again whenever they um uh, there was a group of people who developed a sequel for a long uh closed uh a game series King's Quest, and they worked it was a team of people who worked on a, on an unofficial sequel, and they were shut down by the owners of that series because it was not official because they were continuing something that they even though they were not working on it anymore, they were still making money off of it, and they thought that these group of people would make money off so so you know again, you know it's, it's all focusing on like who owns the tools and what is it what is the content of that of, of that, um, of that uh, uh, product? or It's not a product, but it's like of your expression. It's like, is it your expression or is it your expression of something else? And if that clashes with whoever owns the tool, then you, you get shut down.
4: mean to shorthand a lot of the work that, that Henry did as far back as Textual Poachers and that Lawrence Lessig now specializes in, we're going to run into a lot of questions about whether you know, when you talk about creativity and collaboration in the digital age, whether appropriation and inspiration are valid forms of creation and collaboration. I mean, if I am inspired by something someone does and I make something new that riffs off of that, are we collaborating even though they didn't know or want to collaborate with me on it? I mean, with fan fiction, there was never as much of a financial imperative behind answering that question. But I think to Ian's question, it's going to become a huge deal now to figure it out. coming from Shakespeare, like,
5: his stories were not original. He was always taking other... Person, like all the people's works and mixing it up. So so Shakespeare would have a hard time now because he was you know remaking stories like Ovid or Holland Shand and whoever. And he was not inventing the story. It was how he made it and how he delivered it that made him who he was.
1: Before the
8: age of copyright. Yes. <laughs> Start speaking again. I'll jump in. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> uh, so given the context and experiences from which all of you are speaking, I completely get the sort of deliverable need to have a point thing, but I do want to register a plea for not having a point. And having been part of C3 from the very beginning, the Convergence Culture Consortium, there was also a sort of group, and William was the villain slash ringleader here. It was called Global Media and Convergence, and all we did was get together each Friday morning, and I'll say a bit more in the panel in the evening, and read and talk And I remember at the end of the year, Alex Chisholm sort of came in and we put up these 50 post-it notes and he was staring his hair out saying, what do you you want to say? Do you have a point? And no, we didn't have one. And I want to register a plea for that because thinking more broadly about CMS going forward, there is a certain value to those sorts of very open-ended sort of collaborative ventures that do not necessarily yield the same kinds of deliverables that we might be imagining, but that do sort of feed off and sort of complement and add ideas to other ongoing ventures. And in some ways, you know, when you think about C3 as a productive failure, sometimes I wish we had precisely that sort of open-ended, non-deliverable, two-year write-off that we could have for C3. Perhaps that could be one way of going forward. And I was gonna ask William to say a little bit more about how to imagine that sort of open-ended space as well within CMS going forward. I'm gonna take the microphone just long
4: enough to take my foot out of my mouth on this point. Um, I I, I should clarify that I think exploration and trying to figure new things out is a totally valid point and I I agree with you actually that something very destructive happens when we think that everything needs to have a point and know what that point is in advance. I guess to to go back to what was being said on the first panel, the point that I poorly attempted to make I think is more that whether you have a specific point or a generalized kind of exploratory direction, it's not enough to go after that and then not feel responsible for in some way being able to communicate what you're finding to other people who can continue to work with it.
3: Sure. Yeah, I think
5: that it has to do with what Beth was talking about before, you know, the importance of being able to fail. Um, you know, Okay, well, we tried this or this, we didn't get anywhere here and you can still talk about it and you can still talk about, you know, this was a dead end and that's okay. That's one of the advantages of academia that we can fail without losing millions of dollars or whatever. And along those lines, I mean,
2: not necessarily failure, but in the case of revolution, we had a broad goal to teach about colonial Williamsburg. And when we started, we thought we were going to focus on uh, things like the the physical making of things, like what people are actually doing every day, um, because that's what they actually do at the Museum of, of Williamsburg. Um, then we had, we, we had a very open-ended process where we were allowed to completely, to really radically change pedagogically what we were teaching and how we were teaching it and Matt talked about this in the last panel. It really again came out of um, the prototyping process of uh, trying different ideas and as he mentioned, it came from total a completely different discipline of wanting to critique uh, uh, mainstream game design. It really had nothing to do with um, with educational theory whatsoever but the framework of the project allowed that to happen we weren't we didn 't start with a preconceived um, or we did start with preconceived ideas, but it allowed us to to completely shift as we found um, new solutions. Just, a, just a I think we're
0: running. to pick up on Aswin's point, I mean, okay. this was, it was actually an extraordinary group of people and that made it work. The opportunity to, to do that is really bound into things like funding. Our classes, because of the limited time, everything, we have a lot of stuff to cover and there's not a lot, there's play with ideas but not sustained play because you've got to just shift through concepts and bang through a lot of material fast. With our projects, because a lot of them are driven by particular funding sources, there are particular focuses or foci to what we do. And we have a little bit of endowment that at that time we could play with to, to create a space to actually just explore ideas, and ideas that I think have long, much longer-term payoff um, than short-term deliverable. That's that's obvious. But that really that freedom really comes with money, with, with sort of institutional support or endowment that we we're slowly building, and I hope we do more. But that was a a precious opportunity, and uh, while well, we can talk more about it, given the time
1: thanks okay, two very quick uh, last a quick one
7: yeah. um, just to talk about the creative process and collaborations, especially outside of ac- academia, working with people from the corporate world. Um, I think one of the most difficult things for me coming out of the program I graduated in two thousand and four was sort of this assumption of having collaborated with people. Where making money was somewhere you know on the priority list, but it was you know number three, number four, and there was all these other kind of social and intellectual issues that were higher up, and then collaborating with people in the real world where money was really the top thing, and it wasn't obvious, you know, and it sort of came out subtly after a number of conversations that hey, wait a minute, really here to make money. And I can appreciate that, you know, having run a business now for four years and having to make payroll and all that, you know, money, you need to have it. But um, but I think that's one of the real challenges of a CMS. And um, and, and I'm just recalling, too, this uh, great essay we read by Guy Debord uh, called The Spectacle, and sort of about how capitalism tends to swallow everything. And I think one of the difficult things for us who are out there in the real world is is Thinking about those essays as real things. They're not just ideas. They're real things that are being implemented. And then how do we deal with clients? How do we deal with partners? How do we deal with investors where the major thing is not, you know, they're already multimillionaires. They want to make many more millions. Do we relate to those people? Can we relate to them? How can we, you know, work within their system? And I think that's a lot of what, what I think CMS is, could do in the future is work towards, uh, you know, preparing us for that and having those conversations, those real conversations about situations like that.
1: Well, I want to thank everybody for uh, all these questions and admit failure once again. Uh, This is a tremendous subject. Uh, We can't possibly cover it, Uh, but it is uh, fascinating to hear all the ways in which people have thought about it. I do note that we really didn't get into Beth's area, which is creativity in the arts and the digital age, and that's one omission I'm apologizing for, but uh, perhaps it's a topic of another session.